as we continue in our uh, sermon series, uh, continuing in the book of Proverbs together, we've made it as far as uh, Proverbs chapter 5, or at least this morning we're going to explore Proverbs chapter 5, and I will reintroduce to some of you and then introduce to you, uh, to some of you, uh, Daniel Golan. Uh, Daniel is a good friend of mine. Daniel, uh, many of you will know, spent five years with us on staff at Crossridge. He left just about two years ago or just a little more than two years ago to uh, finish his master's at Southern Seminary in Kentucky. He's back. Uh, we love Daniel and Stephanie and uh, his, his girls, uh, Emma and Annalise, and his uh, newest addition to the family, Darius. Uh, so uh, just glad to see the ways that God is growing your family and got, glad to see the ways he's growing you as well. So let me just pray for you, mm. Daniel, as you minister to us this morning. Thank you, Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity we now have to open your word together as we unite our hearts and our minds uh, into what it is that you want to say to us. And Lord, as we uh, do that this morning, I pray that as we hear these words from Proverbs 5, as we hear what Daniel has to say to us from them, that our hearts are open to receive what it is that you might have for us. And Lord, uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me invite you, if you haven't already opened up your Bibles to Proverbs 5, to do that. And while you do, let me just take a moment and just say, it is, it's, it's good to be back. This is, uh, this is the place where we had our first child, where we raised our children for the, at least the first few years of their life. And um, yeah, we've missed, missed this place, and so I feel honored to be here and privileged to get to open up God's word for you this morning. So um, let me just read Proverbs 5 for us, and then we will uh, jump into our text. This is God's word. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with the forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? 
For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let me just quickly pray for us again. Heavenly Father, we desperately need to hear from you this morning. Father, we come to this text with hard, stubborn hearts, Lord. Lord, as someone said, we today have the power of God's, but without wisdom. Lord, we need your wisdom. Teach us, and don't just teach us, Lord. Change us. Help us to be in awe of your son, Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Well, John Bunyan is famous for writing the second best-selling book after the Bible of all time, The Pilgrim's Progress. One of his lesser-known books, though, is called The Holy War. The Holy War is also an allegory. Describes a city called Mansoul. Mansoul is an impenetrable city. It's a fortress city. It's led and ruled by its powerful king, King Shaddai. However, even though the fortress is impenetrable, there are five gates where it is vulnerable. The eye gate, the ear gate, the mouth gate, the nose gate, and the feel gate. Mansoul has a sworn enemy. A traitor, someone who turned his back on King Shaddai, and his name is Diabolus. Diabolus decides that he wants to lay siege to the city. Where does he mount his attack? Not on the field gate, not on the nose gate, not on the mouth gate but on the eye gate and on the ear gate. He sends a messenger to the townspeople of Mansoul, and he speaks to them, and he dangles forbidden fruit before their eyes. And he writes, When the people saw that the fruit was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and when they heard the promises of Diabolus, the city fell. Except there was no battle that day. The townspeople just let him in. He walked right in through their ear gate and their eye gate. Today, we are continuing in our series in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, written by King Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, Solomon is writing to his son. He's writing to the one day future king of Israel. And this king, if he's going to rule his city well, he needs to know where his city is vulnerable. Solomon tells his son, it's not vulnerable out there. It's vulnerable right here and right here. If the king wants to prosper, if the king wants peace, he has to keep an eye on his own life. 
And Solomon knows something. The place where one is most easily tempted in the eyes and the ears is in adultery. Now, please, this morning, do not get hung up or excused, if you will, by the specificity of the word adultery. More broadly, Solomon is alluding to the dangers of sexual immorality. God's design is that sex would be exclusive, that it would take place solely in the covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus says that if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Therefore, any form of sexual immorality outside of marriage is breaking the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. So Solomon, though, is writing to his married son, and that's why he talks about it in the form of adultery. Furthermore, please don't think that the Bible here is portraying women as evil, as though it is the woman's fault that a man falls into adultery. Remember, this is a dad writing to his son. It would be different if a mother was writing to her daughter. She would warn her to stay away from the man who would trick her, who would deceive her, who would speak only about her physical appearance and use her for sexual gain. It is not women that are bad. It is not men that are bad. It is you that is bad. You are the one you need to watch out for. Be aware of the ways you are tempted to sin. Last thing I want to say by way of introduction is that Solomon repeatedly warns his son. In the course of three chapters, five, six, and seven, Solomon will talk about sex three times. I titled this sermon, The Talk, as in the sex talk. But the reality is, in your own home, it needs to be the talkings. This is not a one and done. This is a repetitive discussion that you need to be having with your children. Sex is everywhere in our culture. Sex or culture will either sell you or they will sell you with sex. Recently, the pornography industry eclipsed the $1 trillion a year mark. Let me put that in perspective. You could employ every single working Canadian at $50,000 a year. It's huge. It is massive. The average age that a child is now exposed to pornography is 11. That is the average age. You type a wrong web address in your browser and pornography can show up, like it did in my own life. And if you, as a child, are not aware at that moment what you are looking at and what God's design is for sex, it can destroy you. This is a conversation you need to be having with your children 
regularly. Have it early, have it often. Now, just a disclaimer this morning. I will be clear, but I will not be crude. I will not be clear enough, though. So please, go home, follow up with your children, and keep talking about it. But this is Solomon's talk, so what does he have to say? First talk, he wants to talk about these three things. These are my, this is my outline this morning. The lie of adultery, the devastation of adultery, and the cure for adultery. Firstly, the lie of adultery. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. The father is pleading with the son. Son, listen to me. This is important. If you don't have a dad or if you don't have a mom, listen to your heavenly father. He's warning you. Listen to me. This is important. Verse 3. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Watch out for the forbidden woman. That word forbidden, literally, in the Hebrew Bible is the word strange. Now, it's not that she's bizarre, and so you need to watch out for her. It's that she does not fit in to the ethics of Israel. By the way, she is almost as an outsider, an outcast. She's forbidden. She's foreign. She's strange. And it's that sin that is forbidden and strange that is often most tempting. And so Solomon says you have to watch out for her lips. Now Solomon likely here is not warning his son about the pleasures of kissing. Instead, he's warning his son about honey lips. He says, verse 3, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The adulteress, she's good at puffing up. She knows how to make a man feel good. She knows how to inflate his ego. She knows how to feed him words and compliments that he does not get at home. And men are not the only ones tempted by words. I recently talked to a woman, a woman I highly respect, and she, she was just mentioning how hard it was for her to take care of children and leave her work behind. She was climbing the ranks in her, home, in her workplace. She was getting praised by her employer, People were complimenting her constantly, and when she went home to take care of her children, it seemed to all stop. And I was just realizing in that moment how easy it would be to fall into the arms of someone who would have fed her honey lips, honey words. So let me ask you, where are you getting your compliments from? Where are you getting your compliments from? Where are you looking for it? Is there someone at work? Is there someone you seem to constantly be bumping into at a store? Are you looking for those compliments? Because if you are, Solomon says you're in danger. 
See, the seduction of an adulteress promises life, but in reality, it brings death. Look at verse 3 again. It says, For the lips of forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Her sharp as a two-edged sword. It looks like it's honey. It tastes like honey, but actually it's bitter wormwood. Her words are smooth as oil, but in the end, they cut you down like a double-edged sword. A lot of money goes into killing cows. Major beef corporations, it turns out, will pay a lot of money to a scientist who has researched what the ideal procedure is to turn livestock into meat. This researcher found that there were certain stimuli or noises that seemed to stress or scare cows. And so she says, in a slaughterhouse, workers should not use cattle prods. They should not yell. Instead, they should gently lead cows in silence onto a ramp. Those cows should then go through a squeeze chute that mimics their mother's nuzzling touch. The idea is that a cow feels like they're going home, as though this is a path well-traveled. The conveyor belt then slowly lifts them off the ground. They don't even notice that their feet aren't touching. And in the blink of an eye, with a surgical strike between their eyes, the livestock becomes meat. The scientist calls this process the stairway to heaven. Solomon says that's what the path of adultery is like. It lulls you into thinking that everything is fine, that you're comfortable, that nothing can go wrong, but in the end, it's a lie. It promises you life, but it delivers you death. So you may not be right now actually in the middle of an adulterous affair, but let me ask you, are you anywhere on that path? Are you toying with it? Is there a little bit of flirtatious conversation happening? Are you looking at the racy picture or video? Just, just a little bit, not going all the way there. Are you fantasizing about someone who's not your spouse? About what life could be like if you only had married someone else? Solomon says, you might think you're on the stairway to heaven, but actually you're at the slaughterhouse. Secondly, he talks about the devastation of adultery. The devastation of adultery. That slaughterhouse scientist, she says that she often gives tours to people who are interested in finding out where their meat comes from. Except she says that sometimes this tour can go very wrong. She describes one woman who accidentally walked into the blood room at the beginning of the tour. She felt nauseated, traumatized, and almost fainted. And so the scientists desperately tried to calm her down. 
So she took her to the catwalk to see where the peaceful cows were walking to their end. To which the tour guide said, it's not so bad now. That's the way temptation works. Temptation is constantly trying to conceal your future. It's trying to show you and illuminate instead the immediate pleasures and delights you might experience. Just like in the garden. No, you won't die. You will be like God, the serpent said. Solomon, though, to help his son, then wants to pull the curtain back. He wants to show you what eventually happens. And he really highlights two consequences. The first consequence is dishonor. Dishonor. Look at verse 8 and 9. Solomon says, Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Verse 14. I am at the brink of utter ruin, you will say, in the assembled congregation. Dishonor. I, uh, in preparation for this sermon, had the chance to talk to my brother, and I just asked him. I was just curious. I said, if I was to commit adultery on my wife, Stephanie, what would you think of me? And he he just paused for a second, and he just, he just, you couldn't even look at me. He just looked down and he just said, I would just think less of you. That's what Solomon says adultery does. It brings dishonor. It starts internally. You feel shame and, and guilt. You, you really begin to wonder whether you ought to be loved again. Then it goes outward. It begins at home. You lose the love of your spouse Your children, if you have any, are heartbroken. Your relationship with them is fractured. You you really don't know if you'll ever have the same relationship you had with them. And if your spouse wants, legally she can pursue divorce. Biblically, she can pursue divorce. Then it goes public. Your name is dragged through the mud. Your friends hear about it. Your parents hear about it. Your co-workers hear about it. Your neighbors hear about it. And they realize that you are a liar, a cheat. You like to take the easy route out. You're selfish and you're untrustworthy. And there's no coming back from that perception. I think this is probably best illustrated recently in the musical Hamilton The musical describes this up-and-coming politician, Alexander Hamilton. He is rewriting the American Constitution. He's one of America's most brilliant minds. And then in just a moment, with all the stress that's going on in his life, to just escape a little bit, for just a little bit of reprieve, for just a puff of passion, he throws it all away. He cheats. He commits adultery on his wife, Eliza. And in one of the following songs, Eliza sings probably most passionately in the whole musical. Her last stanza, she says this, You forfeit all rights to my heart. You forfeit all rights to our bed. You'll sleep in your office instead with only the memories of when you were mine. I hope that you burn. 
And then almost gloatingly, Thomas Jefferson sings, you're never going to be president now. Never going to be president. Never going to be president now. And that's how his political career ends. He throws it all away. Adultery has exposed his character. It's marred his name. It's brought dishonor, and he'll never be the same. But not only does adultery bring dishonor, it also drains you. Let me explain what I mean. It drains you. Look at verses 8 to 11 again. It says, Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and and your years to the merciful. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go out to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. Many think that, for example, let's just take pornography, is a victimless crime. But the reality is it saps you from your life, and it saps the life from all those around you. A book was published called Premarital Sex in America. The authors studied the effects that porn had on America as a society, and they said this, quote, porn affects virtually everyone. They say these these things. It says pornography turns you into a consumer, So instead of figuring out how you can live your life for others, how you can serve others, you look at others as a commodity. You want them to serve your own needs. They said, I quote, pornography causes crushingly unrealistic expectations, crushingly unrealistic expectations of what people ought to look like and perform like in the bedroom. They say that especially men experience a lower threshold of tolerance in their homes. They run away from difficulties and struggles. They tap out and they take the easy route out wherever they can find it. Subconsciously, they said, pornography forces women to accommodate to the fashion of the porn industry. And then pornography, with every click of the mouse today, floods your brain with dopamine. To withdraw off of pornography, they say that is often similar to withdrawing off of cocaine. It decreases your ability to enjoy life and pleasure in other aspects of life. It's addicting. It takes your time away from you. My wife told me that at her school, students are often staying up till 2 a.m. just clicking and clicking and clicking. And so they show up to school half asleep, unable to focus, depleted. Pornography saps your life away from you. It drains you. Please hear me. I do not say this to guilt you. I say this to plead with you. Cut it out of your life. It's killing you. Good news is Solomon gives us some strategies, some strategies to combat adultery. 
he gives us the cure for adultery. Verse 8, he gives us the first one. He says you have to, first off, get away. Verse 8, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. He says get away from her. He doesn't say evangelize her, rebuke her, see her, talk to her, walk by her desk, text her, maybe partner on the job together. He says, no, just get away. Flee from her. So let me ask you, what do you have to do to actually flee sexual immorality in your life? What would it look like to take drastic measures? Maybe you have to cut off internet from your phone. Maybe you have to move the computer into a central localized spot in your house. Maybe you need to stop walking down certain corridors in the mall. Maybe there's certain music that is tempting you and luring you into this sin. You have to take drastic steps, Solomon says, because the devastation is also drastic. So you have to get away, first off. Secondly, he says you have to have some fun of your own. Look at what he says in verse 14, verse 15, sorry. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. The Bible is seen as portraying a woman's genitalia as being a well, as a cistern. He says, Solomon, you got to drink. Satisfy your desires. Solomon's not bashful here. Verse 16, I am getting a little hot. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets. He's probably alluding to a male orgasm. Delight in your spouse. Experience ecstasy because of her. Run to her and have some fun. Verse 18, he gives his son the best homework. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And all of God's people said, amen. No, no one here said that. Right? Have some fun of your own, Solomon. This is where you, Solomon says, just enjoy your spouse. This is the place to experience true, deep satisfaction. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Sex is a gift from God. The orgasm is a gift from God. God created it. He's not surprised in the garden. He's walking by Adam and Eve and go, oh my goodness, what are you doing? No, he created that. He said it is good. The first little poem in the Bible is a love song. A naked man is singing over his naked wife. We should enjoy sex with our spouse. It is to be a delight to us and it is to be an expression of our commitment to them. So husbands, wives, how hot is the fire at home? Are you stoking that flame? Are you giving of yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually to your wife, to your husband? 
Are you putting in the work at home to ensure that you're experiencing delight at home so that you're not tempted out there? So get away. Have fun at home. And he says one more thing, though. See, I think singles, you might be at this point tempted to think, well, basically I just got to get married. That, that, that's the solution, Solomon's saying. Be intoxicated in your spouse's love, right? Just get married and everything changes. And Solomon says, no, it doesn't actually still work like that. Even if you have great sex at home, you can still fall into sexual sin. Solomon says there's really one more thing you need to do in order to flee temptation. He says you have to fear God. In the end, it still comes down to fearing God. Verse 21 to 23. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. It may surprise you to find out that evangelical teenage Christians engage in more premarital sex than their liberal Christian counterparts, or their Mormons, or than Jews. The reason for this is because evangelical Christians are actually poorer than their wealthier religious counterparts because they come from a lower socioeconomic position, they're willing to engage in a little bit more risky life-taking. Whereas wealthier religions, wealthier teenage Christians or their cult counterparts, rule out certain forms of risk-taking. As Russell Moore put it, he says, evangelical or no, sorry, the wealthier Christians, they avoided, I quote, sexual intercourse, not because they didn't want to go to hell, but because they do want to go to college. Solomon says, ultimately, son, it can't be about a form of risk-taking. Sexual morality is not a form of risk-management. It has to be about living rightly before your God. Your God, Solomon says, sees all that you do. Your ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. He sees all you do, and so if you disregard him, if you disobey him, sin will ensnare you, It will drag you down, and ultimately it will send you to hell. True sexual freedom and flourishing begins with the rightful fear of the all-seeing God. Well, let me end this way. The problem with all of these cures is that if you really think about it, they're not cures at all. They seem to be actually curses. See, if you actually check your heart, if I actually check my heart, I've flirted with that woman. My eyes have stared for just a little longer than they know they should have. 
I've enjoyed the compliments of that other person. I've not fled from sexual morality. I've, I've tried to see how close I can get without destroying my life. My mind has wandered, and so we've either actually committed sexual adultery, or at the very least, we've committed it in our heart. So the very thing Solomon says you should not do, we do. And so the very thing Solomon says you should avoid, we all deserve. It's hell. So what's the actual cure then? Well, remember, Solomon is writing to his son. The hope is in the son. The hope is that the son would obey. The hope is that the son would be moral sexually. The hope is that the son would be perfect. It's just not this son. But it is a son that came from Solomon's line. It is Jesus, the true and perfect embodiment of God's wisdom. Jesus obeyed his father perfectly. Jesus' eyes did not wander. He stayed on the path. Jesus was not lured by the words of Diabolus or the devil or the serpent in the wilderness. He obeyed right till the end. Jesus is the one, though, who despite living a perfect life, received the very thing we deserved. He died. but he died so that we could be credited with his righteousness. His perfect obedience is credited to you, and your sins, your sexual immorality is clean. It's forgiven. It's nailed to the cross. It's done with so that when Jesus looks at you, he looks at you just like he looked at the adulterous woman. He says, do they condemn you? Where are they? He picks up the woman's face and he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is the one who lived, who died, and lived again so that the king could take his rightful place back in man's soul. Let me pray for us. Good, gracious, merciful God. Maybe we should begin by saying sorry. Forgive us. Forgive us for our sexual sins, Lord, for our lustful hearts, for our sinful ears, and for our sinful eyes. Father, I pray for these people here. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive them. I pray that they would seek grace and mercy in your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for those right now who are tempted. 
pray for those who are on the path at the slaughterhouse, heading to their death. Father, would you awaken them? Would they become conscious of the destructive path that they are on? Father, I pray for those who are not yet tempted, but who will one day maybe be. I pray for those, Lord, who maybe one day will be tired or lonely and just want a a little escape. Father, would you please bring these words to their reminder? Would you please, Lord, help them to find true satisfaction and delight in Jesus? Lord, he is our hope today, tomorrow, and forevermore. For your glory, we pray all these things. Amen.